2: Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano joined as always by the original Long Island Ice B, Benny Scallop. Benny,
1: how you doing, buddy? Dan, I'm in my eighth month of dieting, and, you know, progress has been very slow and but steady. But last week, I lost 198 pounds. 198 pounds? How'd that happen? I broke up with my girlfriend. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, was, was she that bad? Well, you know, she kept me in line the only problem was she wouldn't let me cut ahead in the line
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: so, oh lord
2: well you you hear the uh response from the back there <laughs> Benny? we have a uh
1: the proverbial old, peanut gallery
2: <laughs> an old friend coming back to talk to us today uh benny why don't you tell everybody who we got with us and what's the theme of uh
1: tonight's show Well, we're going to do another Territory Talk. We haven't done one of those in a while. This time, we're going to cover the uh, Central States Territory, also known as Kansas City, with a little uh, side order of uh, Killer Con to boot. And as always, we are joined by the Titan of Territories, a fellow senior writer on the great Pro Wrestling Stories website, Mr. Jim Phillips. Jim, welcome back, my friend.
0: Thank you, my brothers. Thank you. It's been a long time since we've sat down around the little round table here and had a discussion how you guys are doing all right and everything's going okay.
2: Absolutely. Oh, yeah. we've, we've been doing great. Um, Benny just posted on the page over the weekend. We uh, reached the top ten on the U.K. charts. That's always good stuff. I guess uh, King Charles must have put a good word in for us, huh?
0: I heard you're doing good in Ireland. I'm over here in Denver, Colorado, so I guess that makes me a, a Irish. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, Jim, Betty mentioned it, and, and you said it. It's been a while since we've had you on the show. I know we always bring you in to talk uh, your territory talk articles, but you've been through a lot since the last time you were here. You, you posted about your uh, your you know, fortunate back problems and, and you actually suffered from paralysis, but you were just telling us before we uh, got going that that you're you're doing a lot better. So, I mean, we'll start with the obvious more importantly. Let's just tell our listeners, how, how are you feeling? How are you doing these days?
0: Well, I tell you what, I was walking through life with not a care in the world, and it was like The Undertaker sat up in front of me and smacked me in the back, man. I went in to have my back checked out, and what I thought was sciatic pain turned out to be an epidural abscess, which is an infection that surrounds the sac around your spinal cord. So they went in and hacked a piece of my spine out and vacuumed out all around that stuff and got all the debris out and all the bad, the pus and whatnot. Mm. But unfortunately, a side effect of that is being in a wheelchair. So I've tried to make the best of it, man. You know, life's going to throw you a bad hand every now and then. I'm not going to let it get me down. I'm damn sure not going to let it beat me. I went through the hospital rehab and got out of there and went into the reunion rehab place down south of Denver. They got some good equipment down there that works your legs and helps you stand up with assisted stuff. But, yeah, today... I got home about a week and a half ago in my own house, man. I'm thankful for that. And uh, the physical therapy lady came over today and we were working and she put her knees against my knees and I was able to stand up out of the wheelchair five times in a row with assistance from her. But it's like not assistance from a big machine. My legs are getting stronger all the time. I I live on the second story of a house. And I'm teasing my friends and roommates. I can holler out the window to them. I said, I'm like a fat Rapunzel stuck up here until I can manage to get down. I was going to be like the old guys off of the Muppet show, man, and just hurl obscenities and just ridicule everybody that walks by and scorn them like the old old mean guys. But um, I did the GoFundMe, and that really helped out a lot. I was going to get the stair lift, but the equipment wasn't going to work right in my house so i got this machine that i can back my wheelchair up into and it locks around my wheelchair and then i lean back and it's got these tank treads and it just walks down the stairs so that's going to be good until i can get up going again i'm pretty hopeful that by the end of the year i'll be walking so i'm going to give it a thousand percent i know that but i hadn't let it slow me down man while i was in the hospital i finished the um mr olympia article that came out and then the central states territory and then one of my favorite heels of all time killer Khan. yeah so that's what we're going to discuss today i've been excited to to get back and sit down with you guys man and have a talk
1: absolutely well, dude, why don't we uh why don't we start with central states dan did i interrupt you i'm sorry no no no
2: you're 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 fine benny I, i'm i've never been i don't think i've ever been interrupted on a podcast before
1: no First time for everything, right? So, Jim, <laughs> I, I just got done reading the the Central States, a.k.a. Kansas City Territory article. Loved it. And Thanks. there were two figures that that I really didn't know a whole lot about that I'd like to maybe learn a little bit more about. One is uh, a gentleman by the name of – hopefully I pronounced this right – Paul Georgiakopoulos. But he was known in the wrestling world as Pinky George. And I think he was affiliated with the territory, but also the first – nwa president if i have my facts straight and yep. then he also was a, also uh interested in a local boy named uh, orville brown who was the first nwa champion so i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about both of them
0: so with the early days of the nwa although you had a lot of different affiliates coming together to form the nwa the real powerhouse of that organization with the help of Florida, was going to be St. Louis and Kansas City, just because they were centrally located and Sam Munchnick really had his finger on the pulse of everything. But a guy like Pinky George, he reminds me, like, the men that remind me of Pinky George the most that came later are Vince Sr. and Crockett Sr. because those guys didn't just start out in wrestling. They had baseball promotions they did boxing they did all kinds of these things pinky george was the same way he was a hustling promoter and come to realize that wrestling was where the money was going to be at and slowly but surely started promoting more of that and less of everything else until he became full-on and even though you're in a different city being that close together kansas city and st louis you're talking a four-hour drive across i-40 And, like, you know what the other guys are doing because you got workers coming and going and passing through the area, telling you what's going on in the different territories. So it was even in the early days of the carnival action, St. Louis was the Riverport city, man. It was a big deal back then. And Sam and Pinky started working back and forth together a little bit, and they decided to get the NWA
2: off the ground. Nice. So as far as Orville Brown, he was uh, he's
0: your local boy, man, you know what I mean? Like the guy that was tried and tested in the business and had worked in the Carnival Circuit and worked under all these guys, the the famous guys Gotch and all these other guys that have that have been down working the old way. And he was just trusted, you know what I mean? They knew that they could count on him, that he wasn't gonna screw him, he wasn't gonna run off with the title and or hold the title hostage for money, like I'm not gonna go out there unless you give me an extra ten grand right now, shit like that. You had to you had to have those guys in your territory in those days. You had to have champions that you could trust. And Orville Brown was also a guy they knew that they could take care of himself. So yeah, it was very important. Yeah, yeah. Well you've got they got I know you guys are familiar with it, but it's we'll we'll tell the audience. In the old days they had what was called the policeman. And if you had your champion, you had your policeman. And if guys wanted a shot at the champion, you sent them through the policeman first, and they really was a hooker shooter and would stretch and beat the living hell out of anybody. And if you could show that you were good enough to get by that guy or at least stand up with that guy, then they would give you a shot at the champ. But if they thought you were going to come in and just try and shoot on the champ and take the title, you had to get through the policeman first. So it was a means of security, you know?
2: Right. it's always uh we were just talking about that uh, our last actually it came up both our last two shows the uh importance of having the senior statesman as it were that that you could lean on for something like that
0: all the guys that had their own territories had to have that you know what i mean guys that came through
2: yeah i would so, imagine
0: yeah it was it was a must especially in the early days whenever you had guys that it could really come in and in Shanghai, whatever you were doing, and just hijack everything, you know.
1: Yeah. And,
0: but these guys would wrestle for round on round, and like Iron Man matches. Now you think, oh man, a sixty-man Iron Man match. Back then, that was nothing. That was just breaking the sweat, man. Oh yeah. You
2: know. So you look, you look at some of the old cards, and it only has four or five matches. For the entire entire evening, because three of three of those five matches would go thirty or forty five minutes. And it, like,
0: I hate the term resting hold, even though there are times in the ring when you need to catch your breath and stuff like that. But just that term bothers me. But back in the old days, got they would their the twenty minute headlocks were a thing. You know what I mean? Like the on the mat grinding the head, working it. And you know, me spinning back around, all that different stuff, there would be flair added to it, but it was a much slower paced game. And for Orville Brown to be one of the first NWA champions, it only leads credence to the fact that he's from that area and he's got Munchnik and Pinky George behind him pushing for that, you know. But as the NWA grew, it only made sense for that title to move on.
2: Well, something that you, it comes up a lot too with our especially I mean we've talked about it in the territories and we talk about it when we interview our our territory guests is how the crowd like how the fans were back then how serious things were um one of the mainstays of <clears throat> excuse me one of the mainstays in kansas city was sonny myers now he didn't it was this didn't happen in kansas city uh but he was heel working in houston and he was attacked by a fan and stabbed and the wound required 250 stitches to close i mean we often talk about how how real wrestling is and that's a perfect example can you expand a little bit on the kind of crowds they got you talked about the the how close the territories were but but the kind of crowds that you would see in, in kansas city and st louis
0: Well, we're talking about the Midwest of the country, the center of the United States. And I don't
2: want to downplay people anywhere,
0: anybody. But even during that time, this was a much less informed America. There wasn't television sets everywhere. There wasn't all this other stuff. You had radio, if you were lucky, you know what I mean, And back in the older days. And like Sonny Myers was such such a good heel, and he would rile the crowd up to that that white heat you're talking about, that riot level frenzy, but that was how you kept him coming back for more because you wanted to see the baby face beat the hell out of that guy. But Sonny Myers is a is an interesting character. Yeah, he was he held that title like, I wanna say, I looked it up and it was like fourteen times in sixteen years he held that the the title there in central states the heavyweight title it was I think I'm positive it was him it's in my notes later on we'll talk about that more but yeah he owned a carnival for a while like 22 years or something like that like a like a traveling carnival we're not talking about the wrestling so that kind of gives you an idea of the background of the people that like what he's used to performing in front of because you know that I'm sure in his carnival he did his share of taking on all comers for the shoot stuff, you know what I mean? But he knew how to work a crowd. And the crowds back then, you could toy with their emotions a lot more than you can now simply because it was early on in the game and people now are jaded to what they see and they're expecting to what's going to be happening next. But back then you didn't know and they sold it with the, the, the scraping of the eyes and all that stuff. The little things that we see now were huge things back then. You right. know what I mean? Thumb to the eyes, all that stuff, the the leg locks that stretch forever. I mean, my God, the funks with the spinning toehold. You know what I mean? That's like, and I know that's a whole nother generation down the line for NWA, but just that that hold in itself. You know what I mean? It was one of the. You're not gonna hurt nobody with that, but they sell the shit out of it. You know what I mean? So. And nobody,
1: nobody was getting out of it either.
0: Yeah, but like back, especially in those early, early days, you could manipulate the audience so much more so. And those guys did, man. And like you say, there's times whenever you get stuck. People in the audience. There was this was before uh, electronic metal detectors at the gates and stuff like that. People was walking in with vials of acid and knives and rocks and all kinds of other crazy shit. Batteries, like whenever that was later on down the road. It's it was just uh, it was a more raucous time, especially in those early early days. Because it was a different crowd too. There was less children, so you had more of a chance of having a drunk, rambunctious right. audience than a than just a bunch of people hooping and hollering, you know.
1: Yeah, Jim. Last week we had uh, Bugsy McGraw on the uh, on the podcast. Phenomenal guest, and he was so, talking so about great. oh yeah, and uh, he was talking about uh, CWF, the you know the Florida territory mm. in seventy nine, eighty, eighty one, and they ran a five city loop, and I think it was. Uh, Orlando on Sunday, Miami Monday, Tampa Tuesday, West Palm on Wednesday and uh, Jacksonville on Thursday. And they they do uh, spot shows on Friday and Saturday. And they did that for like, you know, several years on end. And they pretty much either had a sellout or a packed house uh, just about every night, which I think is absolutely amazing to keep people's interest that captivated that, you know, 52 weeks out of the year that you're invested enough in the storylines and the angles that you're going to keep coming back and buying a ticket week after week. Did, did central states have any kind of uh, weekly loop or a, a monthly loop or anything like that?
0: Every territory has got the cities that they're going to hit around that's local to where they're working out of to make that money. I don't know of the actual day of like this day, that day they're going to be in this city. But I did jot down uh, some names of some of the significant size cities that is directly in that territory. And it would have been Joplin, Missouri, Columbia, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri, Branson, Jefferson City, and there's all kinds of little small other towns all dotted through there, and I actually grew up on the Illinois-Missouri border, so I can remember going to see NWA shows at St. Louis and Sykeston in different times, like when the Sykeston had the rodeo once a year, there was always a wrestling show one night of the rodeo weekend, you know what I mean, like they always made their pops, and I can't say that what night of the week that they would hit each one. I looked today, and I couldn't find that. But those cities just on the map are dotted right around St. Louis and Kansas City, and you could easily do like a back-and-forth U-shaped loop all through southern and central Missouri and make good amounts of money because Columbia is slap on I-40 in between the two cities. So – and St. Louis is – Going to the Kiel Center and seeing a show back, like, even in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a different type of atmosphere than, per se, going to see a Vince show 10 years later at the Show Me Center in Cape Girardeau. You know what I mean? It was a totally different vibe from the old school to the new school.
2: Well, the uh, you were talking during the circuits and, and having to keep the 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 title with the, your you know, what did they, what did you call them, the elder statesman of sorts the main title in the territory was the NWA Central States Heavyweight Championship uh, I mean if you look at the list of people or excuse me of men who held the title it could fill the Hall of Fame by themselves uh, can you give our listeners just a few names uh, who held that prestigious title and maybe that kind of talk about why it was so prestigious
0: the title itself goes back to 1950 so that right there says you know, I mean, it's one of the earliest ones going with Bill Longson being the first winner of the title. And then Sonny Myers, like we were just talking about a few minutes ago, had dominated that belt. He won it 14 times or 16 times in 14 years, something like that. Jeez. And it was just by its location, being in the Midwest alone, all the way from back in the day all the way up to before vince took over i mean i there's a cavalcade of names i'll run down a few i don't want it just to sound like we're just going to read stats today but i'll run down just a few of the big names that not only lived in that area but worked that territory bob orton senior the orton's famous for coming from the missouri territory the spoiler mike dibiase ted's dad um Ron Reed, which a lot of people know, wrestled in Florida as Buddy Colt. Was in the airplane accident. Buddy oh, Colt yes. was a great, mm-hmm. great wrestler. Um, then you had uh, Harley Race, Dusty Rhodes, Dick Murdoch, um, Brody, Tully Blanchard, all these guys. You know what I mean? Like, have made their way through the territory at one time or another. And Pat O'Connor. You know, all these guys that held that title. And Brody, was he wrestled all over the place, but for a while he was kind of a namestay in and out of Keel. And he wrestled through Munchnik all the time. And these guys, this was later on after Pinky had gotten older, but those guys had built that and built it up. And they were just like, they would trade talent back and forth, back and forth. Bob Geigel held the title quite a bit as well, and he ended up owning that territory after it was all said and done, after Pinky got out of it, Bob Geigel took it over, and he ended up being NWA president as well. So it just shows you the power that came out of that central Missouri area, you know?
1: Absolutely. So we're we, we, bringing up Sonny Myers again. He, to me, and I, I read this in your story he absolutely epitomizes what it was like to be a professional wrestler during the territory days. Uh, One year, I guess he was on the road for 294 days and he racked up 68,000 miles on the road. So I just leased a uh, 2023 Nissan Kicks. I have a three-year, 36,000-mile lease. So Sonny Myers would have like blown through the 36,000 miles between months six and seven, if my calculations are right. So I can only imagine, like, th- that was very typical, though, wasn't it, Jim? That was, He wasn't out of the ordinary.
0: No, that was very typical of the old territorial days, and some of the longer territories that we've discussed before have been the Louisiana area, and Florida's pretty unforgiving. People don't realize how far it is from Jacksonville to Miami until you've made that loop. So it's not uncommon, but it's kind of the one of the things that romanticizes the business a little bit about those early days because you think about it. These guys weren't driving Kias. They weren't driving Nissans. They were out there in the old big-body Cadillacs, drinking beers, smoking cigars, like rolling up and down the roads, living the high life of right. what then was the high life. They were celebrities in their own territories. And some guys, like Race and Rhodes and these other guys that we mentioned, were lucky enough to step up onto that nationwide grander stage and be have that level of celebrity. But there are so many guys in every territory that are just rooted there in that region. That were huge celebrities for that for that area. You know, Tommy Rich in Georgia in the seventies.
1: But you could homestead a territory like like a Myers or like somebody else we're going to talk about in a minute. But like Bulldog Bob Brown, you could stay there and, for years and and make a nice living.
0: Yeah, uh, Bulldog Bob Brown would. He almost wrestled exclusively in that territory. He would hop back and forth to Canada every now and then, but he would he would make the healed face turn, but most every time he was the good guy baby faced that was coming in to take care of the asshole that had the title and he made good money in that one area for years, not just like for a little while but for years, you know, so territories are built around guys like that. You can have guys come in and flash the title and raise the gate every now and then. But it's those guys that are going to be on the mid-card that are keeping people attracted, you know what I mean, to come out. They're not – every now and then you'll get a main event that you're going to put people in the seats with just a main event. But most of the time they're going to have to know that there's good supporting card. Or why else pay for a bunch of bullshit in one good match, you know?
1: Right.
0: But, I yeah, start. Bob Brown, yeah, man, he was one of those guys. He was rooted in that area. And he was like a pug Like he was a grizzly. I I don't want to say I don't want to compare him to Dick the Bruiser or guys like that, but he almost had that type of old school big farm build mentality. You know what I mean? Grace, the, the, the the corn
2: fed boys, huh?
0: Harley Race was the same way, almost that exact thing. He grew up on a farm. You know what I mean? He was like the it's the quintessential corn fed country strong. You know what I mean? Grip of steel type of shit, you know, that came out of all those guys from the Midwest. Hodge, all those guys that came out of those Midwest states.
2: Yeah. They were
0: all all known for that country strong mentality because they got their ass busted whenever they was kids.
2: <laughs> who who was it, Benny, that used to do the convention circuit where he would crush the apples?
0: That, oh, that that's was Hodge. Hodge, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, that's Hodge. Okay, that. yeah. He could bust pliers, too. Break pliers with his—that's insanity—and they weren't gimmicked. Jim Ross right. talks about it. Yeah, it's crazy <laughs> to me that some that just—that's just like it's like shaking hands with the with the thing off a of Fantastic Four or something, and just getting your hand pulverized into mush.
2: Right. You know those yeah. those the, those scenes in Superman where you hear the cracking as he's squeezing somebody's hand.
0: One of the funniest stories. I've ever told him, we'll, we'll take a sidebar real quick since we're talking about Hodge and, and and guys in the Midwest that were badasses. Bradshaw was telling a story about how he was going to rib Briscoe. And he, they took pictures of them pissing on the Oklahoma State sign at the state line when they come across the state line there. And they posted a big printout of it inside the WWF commissary there at the show that night. And if they, I don't know if they were in Oklahoma City or Tulsa or where they were at. But anyway, uh, Bradshaw talks about how, fa- how big and funny he thought it was, and he had his chest blowed out, and he walked around the corner and seen Jack Briscoe and Danny Hodge staring standing there looking at the sign, the picture of the sign, and then they both turn and look at him. I was like, oh shit, I would have ran, man, because both those guys would stretch you and break you into nothing, you know. <laughs> both Midwestern guys, you know.
2: Right. Yeah, funny. that
0: was one of the funnier stories I've heard about ribs going bad.
2: <laughs> that is too funny.
1: <laughs> uh, Jim, so one one other quick thing about, about uh, Bob Brown. I think he actually had the title, I believe, 18 or 19 times. Really? But, uh, now, unless I – I mean, I, I watched a couple of videos of the guy. He looked like somebody that you'd find at a, a beer league at a bowling alley. What was I mean was that just because maybe I saw him at the the tail end of his career. I mean, what was his what was he good at on promos or you know was and in his younger days was he, you know, a strong man or like built better or I just I couldn't see the allure, but I'm sure there had to be something.
0: He had the charisma and he wasn't super charismatic like <laughs> um some wrestlers were, you know what I mean? Not like Jimmy, not, not like you you guys. Jimmy would come down and get the crowd worked up like it wasn't nothing. Boogie, you know what I'm saying? But Bob Brown had that way of, like, if he got against a villain, the people knew that, that it was going to be an ass-cutting for the villain. And you're right, he did look like the guy that you would see sitting, walk into the bar on the corner and just see him sitting there at the bar and turn to look at you. That's why I said earlier, it reminded me very much of a Dick the Bruiser type of person. But, um, yeah, he was one of those guys, man. That the fans knew that if if he got mad, that it, that it was going to be a fight. You know what I mean? It was going to be a fight. Almost a Wahoo type, too. Like when he got riled up enough, the fans knew there was going to be an ass cutting. And Bob Brown was the same way. But Bob Brown was also trusted by the promotion, just like we talked about Orville earlier. They knew that, that he wasn't going to screw him. You know what I mean? And he wasn't going to jack him around. And. Maybe some, sometimes they take guys like that and they're used as transitional champions. Say you've got a guy that's on a hot run and he's given his notice, his run's coming to an end. You haven't really got your book in place yet. You put a guy like Bob Brown in there that can take the title and run with it until you get your shit lined up to bring
1: in the next guy. You know? So was he predominantly a babyface? That guy, I don't know why I just got the impression that he was more of a heel, but he was more of a babyface.
0: I would – yeah, The from the videos that I've seen, he was more of a – he looks like a heel, you know. Right. He was, he was more of the babyface. He could work – like I said, he went back and forth to Canada, so he had the ability to do one in one place and one in the other. You know what I mean? So he could work both sides of that coin. I'm sure that he made flips while he was in Missouri. He was there too long not to, you know, and that right. would have been good money. That's good money. You get a baby face that the fans are behind, and then you do a surprise – he swerve on them, and yeah, that's that just puts people in the seats, you know. So guys like that that were in a, in a territory for for decades, you know what I mean? That they that's what you build your foundation around. You, you build your house on that, you know.
2: <laughs> you talk about foundations. We got to go back a little bit. The uh, late 1950s, uh, Bob Geigel another – nwa president took over the territory and began pushing a local missouri guy uh harley race uh you may have heard of him jim I, maybe in some of your real research yeah.
1: Uh, yeah
2: yeah it may be. I, I think i think he he <laughs> he may have he may have amounted to something i don't remember
1: I heard he was pretty good yeah
2: uh, a king even right right all right <laughs> um, I mean, this, this was a huge shift in the territory, and I mean, all seriousness, a lot of fans know uh, Harley Race, one of the greatest NWA champions in history, uh, but not everybody knows the humble beginnings that he had, the obstacles and all grow- coming from the I mean, the 1950s, this Midwest territory you were talking about. Can you expand on that a little bit?
0: Well, it, like Missouri and all that area, Iowa, it's all farmland, cornland, especially back in those days before the... the Structural boom took off in America, even though it was happening in the 50s. It wasn't quite there yet And towns were still mostly farm towns if it wasn't the big city And that's what Harley race came up out of working the farm and being around that when he was young He was stricken with polio whenever he was a child and overcame that and that alone in itself Is a victory story on its own, but then he goes on to do all these other things and whenever he was in a, um, he was driving, and I don't know if it was from a show or not, but he had his wife in the car with him, and suffered a horrible car accident. And one of the local promoters at that time, um, his wife was killed in the car accident, and Harley's leg was badly, badly damaged, and they were actually going to amputate his leg at the hospital. And the local promoter, Gus Terrace, rolled in and stopped it from happening because he saw the potential and knew what things that could be with Harley and saved that and Harley rehab that and come back and ended up working, you know what I mean, to a, an amazing career after all these things that he had to fight through as a young man. It, on a personal note to give somebody like me going through this hope, you know what I'm saying? Like there is stuff beyond crippling accidents, you know? So, yeah, he had a stellar career and known to be a legit tough guy you know went into the military service served his country in the military and was well known for carrying arms and always had a piece on him in his car or whatnot stories are told of how harley would go into the the locker room to break up a scuffle and somebody thinks they're going to pull a knife or get fancy and harley walk in with a gun and it would be over with you know what i mean like he was like you heard of The Undertaker being a locker room leader back in the later days. That right. was very much Harley Race of his generation.
2: Very nice. Yeah, I wonder, uh, I imagine, what did they call it? Um, wrestler's Court that The yeah. Undertaker used to do? I imagine Harley Race settling disputes probably a little more
1: violent. Yeah, he was the uh, judge yeah, wrestler, during execution. Wrestler's Court
0: was six little friends looking at you out the end of a right. revolver. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that yeah. saying on... Uh, what was that, the, the, the vampire movie with Clooney and Tarantino? It's like, don't try to run because I got six little friends and they're all faster than you, <laughs> you know? Right. Well, but That's how I, I, business was done in those days. It was like you guys got cheated on, guys got robbed from, the, the promoters held out money and faked the gates to get over on the wrestlers. But certain guys, man, it's one of the reasons that he raced – led and held legitimacy to that nwa title they don't give that title especially back in those days to guys that weren't able to number one handle themselves in all circumstances and represent that title as a champion that's not going to get beat out on the street or anywhere else to be a leader in that locker room and something for all the other boys to look up to and walking in not looking like a slob back then they had the halliburton briefcases and all that stuff back in those days the the fancy jewelry and the big coats and you were paid to be a star so you were you were expected to portray that you know what i mean i'm sure it's still that way nowadays but back in the old days i don't know it just it was different you see pictures of the sheik and abdullah and their big fur coats and race and his big coat with the rings and Cadillacs and, like I say, it romanticizes the business that much more for that era. Well, Especially for someone like me, who's a quote unquote historian that 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 loves everything from back then. Like, sure. very rarely will mm-hmm. I turn away from a match from those eras. You know what I mean? Fifties through the early to mid eighties. I've always got time to sit down and watch one of those. You know, no right. matter what the territory is, they were so great. But the central states was definitely a powerhouse of its day. As other cities grew and population centers shifted, St. Louis wasn't always going to be the main population center, so did the presidency and where the title was located switched, just like it did for Crockett and Flair later on down the road. You know what I mean? It it all depends on what, what territory is drawing the most money as to who's going to get that seat because they're the most influential.
2: Well looking at I mean we talk about the highs obviously the fact that you know the territory is is a thing of the past I mean what led to the demise of Central States was it just another territory that eventually got steamrolled by Vince McMahon or or was it dead well before the expansion
0: I think it was the the vacuum of big name top tier talent that was going to these bigger cities that we're talking about these bigger metropolises New York Miami all these different places that were blowing up the Carolinas eventually like it was a it sucked out the talent not and you had your guys like Bob Brown we talked about earlier that weren't going anywhere they stayed in the area and that's one of the reasons they got the titles put on them so many times because the talent was shifting out so much but as all the other places grew it sucked the life out of that section of the country as far as wrestling goes for any major like point of influence you know what i mean like it was in the old days yeah. st louis held on for quite a long time but even like i say even as a kid it wasn't like it w- when i went and watched it it wasn't like it was back in the days that we're talking about right now like in its heyday i can only imagine what the keel was like or they the wrestling at the chase was done at the chase hotel but the keel auditorium that was that was the big that was the big time in st louis if you're wrestling there. You were going to see somebody, and you were going to see some good matches. You know, O'Connor, Briscoe, uh, Brody—all these guys were through on the regular, on a regular basis. You know,
1: it was great. Jim, let's uh, let's shift over to uh, one of my favorite heels as well, Killer Khan. Uh-huh. So, how was he discovered, and and how did he make his way to the United States?
0: So, Khan started in Japan, and he was already wrestling in Japan before he ever made it to America. And I love the way he worked his gimmick, man, that he was he could handle himself in the ring, but he didn't have to do a lot to get a lot out of it. You know, every move meant so much because he would creep around and do his devious heel stuff and catch you when the ref wasn't looking and the the nerve holds and all the different things all the way up to the spewing of the mist. But um, before he got popular in America... Uh, Gotch saw him on one of the, his tours in Japan and saw Khan wrestling over there. And it was this was before the Killer Khan name. He was wrestling under his own name, and uh, Masata. And they saw him over there, and he was like, uh, saw the money in the guy. You know what I mean? Like he could see where he could bring that, that type of a character and turn it heel and come to America and make the big money, especially in New York. You know, but whenever he came over, he broke in in the lower part of the United States, Florida and Georgia, you know. But a lot of the reason those Asian heels were big at that time, we're talking 60s, 70s, even into a little bit of the early 80s before we started having problems with the Middle East, was because of the Korean War, because of World War II, because of Vietnam, because of all this stuff. And it may sound... Funny to say that, but it is. They're naturally characters that you can hate. You know what I mean? Like you can, like they were our enemies for so long. It doesn't matter what kind of a person that man is on the outside of that ring. When he's in there doing that gimmick, he's easily hated. So there's money in that, man. There's money in those guys. So whenever he'd come to Florida, he teamed up with Pac Song, who was already reviled down there as the Asian heel. So they gave him the rub through Pac-Song and he got worked in that way, you know. But Khan, it was just said so great to watch him work, you know what I mean? Like like I said a second ago, you got so much out of so little. He didn't have to act over the top. You just knew he was going to whoop some ass. But whenever uh, he went from Florida on up into Georgia. And the thing about whenever he was in Georgia, he I know uh, me and Benny talked about where he had uh, wrestled a young Bret Hart while Bret Hart was making the tour down through there. And Andre the Giant was also in and out of Georgia at this time. And they wrestled some tag team matches opposite one another. And Andre's back and forth to Japan all the time too during the worldwide circuit. And I know this is suppositional to me, but I almost think that Andre would have had to have heard of Khan overseas. And then he works with him in America, sees that he's in America. And knowing how senior likes the ethnic heels in the big city told him about it. And the next thing you know, Khan's working in New York, you know, and this is probably 81, 19, the summer of 81, maybe whenever he made that transition up there. So he and Andre had a huge angle, and we'll talk about that here just momentarily. But for me, in my mind, Vince Sr. was a calculating man. You heard stories how he used to clack the quarters in his hand whenever he was making decisions, stuff like that. He was a calculating guy, and he wouldn't have brought Khan in if he hadn't saw money as well. But not only that, Sr. was the booker of Andre. So, if you wanted to use Andre, you talked to Senior and he booked out through him. So, these guys had a very close relationship. So, you can almost guarantee that if Andre goes to Senior and tells him, hey, this guy is somebody that we can make a lot of money with and we can get a lot of work out of, he's going to listen. You know, it's not like anybody else, like some Joe Schlubb giving him the rub. You know what I mean? This is Andre putting him over. So I'm I'm I can almost guarantee that's how that happened because why else would a, a virtual unknown in the American wrestling scene get a big angle with Andre like that because Andre doesn't just put people over like that on a whim you know what I
2: mean right well y- you know you y- you brought up a really good point he kind of came. Made an impact fairly quickly. I mean, you, you talked. I agree with you that if Andre was in Japan at the time, he would have probably caught wind of this of, of the con coming up. Uh, you talk about Pak Soon winning the tag titles in Florida. Uh, that was Wayne Ferris and Larry Latham uh, in the finals of that tournament. Woo! And uh, you
0: bombers, know,
2: baby, <coughs> yep, baby. I was just about to say they beat the bomb, beat the blonde bombers. You know, and then the the Southern Championship stays in Florida for about eight months goes to Georgia. A lot of what you were talking about, um, you know, his, his match in, with Georgia or in Georgia with Bret Hart, excuse me. Um, so, I mean, you talk about, he, he bounced around and rose through the ranks very quickly. And it's, it's fascinating to see, uh, you know, and then obviously from, from Georgia and you talk about him going for, you mentioned how he went further North. It's just, it's fascinating to see, uh, the, the it factor, I want to kind of twist it because this comes to sort uh, of uh, something that we talked about a lot in the last couple episodes. Do you think it was the time and the skill or is – you take night, uh, you know Blonde Bombers beating Khan and throw him on TV today. Does he still get over and become a, me- a megastar?
0: I don't know that it would be like that in today's environment just simply because of what I mentioned a few seconds ago with the attitude toward Asian-American, especially Asian-American heels in the wrestling business at that time. You could take Khan and put him in any territory and have him gang rush your baby face whether or not he's got um, Scandor Akbar behind him like he had in, in Mid-South or whether he's doing it on his own. If you run him in there and he stomps the shit out of the babyface that you love and it's an Asian guy that's doing it, you're going to have money for the next weeks after that seeing this babyface get his revenge. And if you can make him chase the heel, that's even better, you know? So, And the heel coming in and causing the babyface to get disqualified in his matches or slicking down him, hitting him with the ring bell or a foreign object and causing him to lose his matches – there's all kinds of ways they could have manipulated that into big money and that's everywhere he goes. That's not just a one-off. So guys like I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna say Khan was at the level of Andre because nobody's ever gonna be as, as sought after as Andre was, maybe the rock when he was at his highest point. But for the time and the money that was made and everything else, Andre's the biggest grossing thing that's ever gonna have ever happened in the wrestling business. But Khan was on that same level, same as Dusty Rhodes. They were able to rotate around through all the different areas and make good money. But what had happened, Khan and Andre were getting ready to enter this feud anyway in the Northeast. And they had 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 a couple of little bullshit preliminary matches against each other and talked about each other. You know what I mean? And Then Andre was getting out of bed, I can't remember the exact date, it was 82, he was getting out of bed and slipped and broken his ankle, right, like, at the same time when all this was happening. So, he and Vince got together and figured out this way to work the broken ankle into a storyline to put him out for a little while, and at the same time put Killer Khan over, and we're talking about putting Killer Khan over so big, we like, You almost have to ask yourself, why did Andre pick him? Because we're talking about one of the biggest stars in the wrestling business, not only today, but at that time, megastar, Andre the Giant, right? He -hmm. could have made any heel he wanted to with that angle. Hey, I've broken my leg at home. He kayfabed it. Nobody knew about it but him and Senior, right? He could have picked any heel he wanted to to have a match against that night and put that broken ankle over, but he picked Khan. And after he broke the ankle, Andre goes away, and then they shoot all these all these little videos of Andre or whatnot, you know what I mean, like uh, interview segments talking about showing the ankle, and it's all swelled up and all this other stuff, and they go through that whole big story build, and at the same time, Khan's still out here raising hell, you know what I mean, making fun of the fact that he did this to Andre, beating the shit out of everybody still. They not only made money off of the incident itself, but the whole time Andre was gone, they made money up in the story, building it, building it, building it. And then when Andre finally came back, like months later after he was rehabbed and able to get on the ankle again, they made money again with Andre chasing Khan all up and down the Upper East Coast, Maryland, New York, all through that area trying to get matches, and it ended up in a Mongolian stretcher match or something was like the big payoff for the big year-and-a-half-long deal, you know what I mean, which is funny because what stretcher is going to wheel out Andre, <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like Andre in a stretcher match in itself is kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, but the, the the way that these guys soaked so much money out of an accident that Andre had in his house, you know what I mean? and they got paid off of that for a year year later, and it catapulted Killer Khan into a level of fame that allowed him to go on a circuit after that and tour all the territories all through the country. You know what I mean? Like, that guy achieved a level of fame in the United States that very few Asian Americans, good or bad, have ever achieved. You know what I mean? Like, and... You knew the ring gimmick, he had the, the funny, the, I'm not going to say funny because I'm not trying to knock it. He had the Japanese hat and right. and all that stuff and the scourge and all his, do his fingers and manipulate and do all that other shit. The screams, my God, the screams when he would I jump can, off the <laughs> top rope and drop the them. knee. Oh, he knew his gimmick and he knew how to make money off of it well. And there's been few wrestlers in the history of the business that fell into that loophole, you know what I mean? Obviously, a Hogan, Flair, even though he didn't make as much money as these guys and achieve that notoriety, all these guys found their niche and exploited it to its potential. And that's what Killer Khan did. I mean, my God, the man made it onto a Nintendo video game. I mean, we can't not talk about that with all the gaming, with all the video game kids in America. You know what I mean? We can't not talk about that,
1: you know? You know, know, but when you think about it, Jim, I mean, I don't think the guy gets anywhere near his due as like a... One of the greatest heels ever, because, you know, when at that time, when, when you know, when he was feuding with Andre, Andre was invincible. You can't yeah. really. How many heels can you name that actually put a dent in, in Andre's armor like that? I mean, Khan made Andre look vincible, like, you know, beatable. And that never happened before. The
0: only other time that I've ever seen Andre put anybody over as much as he did Khan was whenever he put over Kamala in Mid-South. And Kamala slammed Andre, dead slap in the middle of that ring. And then they had that big deal where Andre got color and he grabbed Bill Watts by his collar. One of the greatest Andre promos ever in the world. Look up bloody Andre, Bill Watts, Kamala, something like that on YouTube. I guarantee it will come up. It is great. He said, You may have seen me angry before, but you not see me angry now. And he was kicking the shit out of everything in the background. Bill Watts eyes as big as that. Andre knew how to make people. He made Hogan. He made Kamala. He made Khan. You know what I mean? I can't really think of anybody else. He worked with Jake the Snake Roberts in his later years, as as older Andre in the later WWF. But he didn't really make Jake the Snake because Jake was made by then. But in those early days, Andre could make you. He could take somebody that was on the, the fringe and make them a main eventer, you know?
1: But Khan did a great job, I mean, on his end. I mean oh, God, of, yeah. Of, of, make, of making Andre look beatable.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you got to – we can't – you, you're absolutely right, Benny, and I don't want to sit here and make it out just like Andre did everything to make Khan up, get over – Khan was wonderful and and excellent at what he did. The heel timing is a huge thing, knowing what to do and when to do it, and they worked it so well, but especially even after that, whenever he did his territorial swing and he was in Devastation Incorporated and all that stuff later down the road. It was so great because I know I keep saying it, and the fans might not understand it, but the the real students of the game know what I mean by when you say – he gave you so little, but you got so much. He didn't need to be over the top. Before the term monster they they got the term monster heel is such a catchphrase cliche thing now. People use it in talking about everybody. But before that term was mainstream, Killer Khan was one of the first guys that fit that bill. You know? He was larger than life and you and made you believe it. He was yeah, he was great. Like I can't I can't talk about Killer Con the wrestler enough. I don't... Killer Con the guy had to have been a really good guy too back in the day. But I don't like... Killer Con the wrestler that we knew was one of the, the best heels you'll ever see in any match. And I urge everybody that's within the sound of this podcast to look him up and go back and watch his stuff. He had a run with Hogan later on as well in the later 80s. But it was different than the one with Andre. When he was on the run with they had with Andre Andre was in the process of putting him over Khan was kind of at his peak even though he made good money after he was younger he was more agile the gimmick was newer he was kind of getting to his peak when he got with Andre whenever he was back later with Hogan and he had Fuji as his manager that was whenever Hogan was just chewing through heels And Vince was just feeding Hogan heels. And you would see Hogan do a program with somebody that lasted maybe 60, 90 days, two months if you were lucky. You know what I mean? Like, you didn't see it happen very often. Bundy, all these guys you could name that Hogan just chewed through during that time. You know, and unfortunately, that was Killer Khan's role with his second visit in the company. He wasn't – they didn't put as much – behind him as they did the first time he wasn't as revered as a heel the second time through he still had cachet; people still knew he was a badass they still remembered but they jobbed him off to hogan like they did all the other heels at that time
2: yeah that was the hulk hogan monster of the week era
0: basically was that was what was going on you every either that was before the days of the pay-per-view as well. So mostly it was rotated around the Saturday night's main events. Like if just about every Saturday night's main event, Hogan was fighting somebody different. You know what I mean? He had a different heel that he had an issue
2: with. <coughs> you know, we, Benny talked about not giving the, uh, not giving Con enough credit. I mean, several wrestlers there, there were several that won gold everywhere they went. Um, but, yeah, except maybe their runs in the WWF, WWWF. Uh, Mike Sharp's a perfect example, uh, as is Bugsy McGraw, who was on our show last week. Uh, Killer Khan was another. You, you mentioned earlier, you, you said Vince Sr. saw money in him, but did Vince Sr. maybe see him as more of an attraction than as a possible champion?
0: Yeah, I would say for sure that was the idea back then. Like, with Vince Sr., he had, it was about, the ethnic, not only the ethnic villain, but the ethnic hero. You had your Pedro Morales and these different guys like that, but you all had so many ethnic villains that went through there. You know, it was, um, it, like you say, it was an attraction. But fighting Andre, anytime that you've got a match against Andre, you've almost elevated it to that attraction level. You know what I mean? You're not expecting to see, uh, like, a shit a backland match or a guy or a, a briscoe you know what i mean a briscoe style technical match when you're dealing with an andre maybe a younger andre a little more back in his skinny days with the big hair but the olders as andre got older you wasn't getting that like fans didn't look for that when they looked to an andre match they look for a big spectacle and attraction just like you say you know and Khan and several
1: other guys fit that bill coming up. Jim, after you mentioned that run with Hogan in 87, and which didn't go as well as his, his program with Andre or even with, with Backlund back then, um, he was pretty much gone after that, I guess, in 87, which I think he would have been about 40. And although most of the territories were gone, there were still a couple left. I guess JCP was still there, Mid-Atlantic and Memphis. Why didn't he stick around? Because Forty is relatively young, and he seemed like he was in pretty decent shape. Well, I, there's
0: a couple of reasons, in my opinion, that, that this didn't happen. First off, what what would they have really done with him in Crockett? Would he have just been another attraction, bad guy heel that rolled out in a big faction that didn't really have any effect at all? You know what I mean? They wouldn't have put a big – I don't think they would have put a big title run – on him against flair you know what i mean or against he
1: would have have been a paul jones army kind of guy probably exactly
0: exactly. and you got to look at it from his point of view it's almost like that episode of seinfeld where george kept trying to get out on top you leave at at that high point you know what i mean after he did the big deal with andre he hit the territories made good money but you have to remember this whole time he still got interests back in japan The Japan wrestling scene is blowing up and burgeoning back there as well, and he's got investment interests and different things he can go back there and do. So I think, in my opinion, he looked at the situation and said, I can either stay over here in America and be away from home and have to deal with all that, places to live, living in hotels, doing this American schedule, or he can go home and be home all the time and set himself up there he ended up buying a restaurant opening a restaurant over there later on and like i think it he chose to root himself more in his own culture and back the wrestling scene that was happening there more so than being attraction for americans to make money here does that make sense
1: yeah sure does
0: so yeah the i don't know the name of the restaurant i couldn't tell you but there's been even recently when i wrote the article it was so strange it's like uh, the joke we tell each other, which is probably a reality more than a joke, that our our smart devices are listening to us. So, like, as I was writing and researching the Killer Khan article, these photos start popping up on social media. Hulk Hogan with Killer Khan at his restaurant. And people talking to Killer Khan at some other place. I'm seeing these pictures, and I'm like, holy shit, all this is happening as I'm researching the article, you know what I mean? It's like... I got a couple of good pictures for the article out of that, too. So, <laughs> But it was strange the way all that was happening. It's like my computer's listening to me, you know. But, yeah, it was uh, Killer Khan ended up in an altercation later on down the road. And uh, he was on his way to the restaurant and was involved in a hit-and-run accident. And it was his fault, and he hit a pedestrian in the street and kept going to get to the restaurant and the girl ended up being okay and they got it all worked out and resolved but he got heat for it obviously because it was a hit and run but he released he released the statement and it was in such true heel fashion the statement that he was released once it was translated into english basically said i know i hit the girl but i had to get to the restaurant because i had stuff to do there you know what i mean it's like i knew i hit her but i was busy at the restaurant so i just kept going you know what I mean? It was like one of the biggest heel things. So to be able to... You know he's got some pull in his own country to be able to say some shit like that and not suffer serious prosecution. You know, hey, he,
1: owned, he, he owned it more than Snitsky did, right?
0: <laughs> but it was just the, the blasé way of the, the translation of the comment. It's like, yeah, I know I ran her over, but they had, I had to get to work. <laughs> it was so great. It was just so heel. So wonderful. hmm He's alive and well over there, giving, yummy, know, working his restaurant, doing his thing. Yep. So if uh, I don't I don't have a passport, I don't think of, If I ever left the country, I'm not sure they'd let me back in. But if I ever got a chance to, <laughs> Japan's on my bucket list. There's a lot of things I want to see, Sumo Live, the Tokyo Dome, uh, the nighttime food scene. But going to his restaurant would definitely be right up there with the uh, Robotta Steakhouse or whatever it is. That's over there?
1: Yes, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah,
0: yeah. That would be, a, there's definitely stops you got to hit while you're there, and that would be one of them.
1: But he always built himself, where he was built from Mongolia, though, right? Yeah, the, yeah.
0: Yeah, most of those guys, they did that, to, and even the Killer Khan, they did that to try and relate back to Genghis Khan, the vicious Mongolian ruler. They was the big gimmick, you know? Right. But a lot of those asian guys tried to do that type of gimmick and only some of them were good at it the sad part is with the way the society was in our country coming up in those days and people were stereotyped and ethnicities were looked down upon and different things a lot of those guys especially like asian performers are pigeonholed into doing only certain types of gimmicks mostly heels every once in a while you'll get your samoans or your Pacific Islanders steamboat that is a super big baby face, most of the time, if you go back and look in those old days, if it wasn't wrestling in Hawaii or the West Coast, you almost always saw the Asians as a villain. Almost always. It was the Germans, the Russians, (laughs) the the Japanese,
2: yeah.
0: Exactly. And then the the Middle Eastern people later on in the 90s. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Big heel turn with Sergeant Slaughter. (laughs) Yeah. But these are the like guys like Khan and territories like Central States are unsung and lesser talked about. And I think it's great that you guys take the time to let somebody like me come on and, and discuss this type of stuff and the history and, and all that. I love it. I eat and breathe it. It's not like I just do this to get myself over even if i wasn't on any of these programs i'd still be the guy that had the big huge tape collection the guy that watches peacock wrestling in the old (laughs) territories because he doesn't want to watch the stuff that's on now you know what i mean like right it was for me the the late 50s through the early 90s to the just before the attitude era now i need to cut that off into the late 80s just before Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels came into popularity, just before all that happened, those years of the wrestling business aren't well-known enough by today's generation. They pick everything up at the Raw Attitude Era and run from there. And I think every time anyone like me has an opportunity to ring that bell and give attention to those older days, it's a good thing. And bio these older guys that are still around with us in their old age, but changed the business
2: when the business was booming you know right no that's that's so true and it's well, part of the reason we love doing these territory episodes with you is because you know Benny and I are also both huge fans of the territory days and despite the fact that a lot of the tape libraries are out there there's so much of it that's not you catch little clips here and there and that's that's it you know entire decades of matches, thousand and especially like you said, these guys on the road three hundred plus days a year. I mean that's thousands upon thousands of matches gone. Nowadays, yeah. you know, nowadays some ho dunk uh self taught you know idiot lighting himself on fire and jumping off the, you know, the, 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 the barricade at a Walmart he he's he's got twenty you know two hundred videos on YouTube it's, and yeah. somebody somebody like Khan half his half his career was never never cataloged that we that's why we love doing this history stuff but Jim before we uh, before we wrap up and let you go um obviously it's it, you know we it's great to hear that you're doing well but um what uh, what do we got coming up well, what do you got out now the uh, obviously pro wrestling stories but but any uh, what do you got coming up where can uh, where can people look up and find your find your good stuff
0: yes i'm fortunate enough to be the the historian of sorts at pro wrestling stories as well right now um i'm doing a deep dive and doing a lot of research into portland um and we're talking about the old portland back in the days what we were talking about earlier with pinky george but back even before then going back to the late 1800s and Portland was significant in the history of the wrestling business before Don Owen, before Roddy Piper, before all those guys. There was uh, there was stuff going on there, and I don't want to let the cat too far out of the bag because the next thing that I'm going to do is we're going to do a biography of one of the guys that helped get Portland off the ground, and then we're going to marry that with the Portland Territory. So that's what fans can expect of... The historical end of things for me over the next month or so, two months from pro wrestling stories. I wish we. I'm glad we're not doing video because my room's a goddamn mess. But if we were over my shoulder, I've got my bookcase, and that's like that's like my most cherished stuff is in there. Histo- historical books and stuff like that, and I've got like from the 70s all the way up to the end of UWF every match card that was ever in Mid South and you can go through and look at all the different stuff, you know? So it's like Cornette with all his, his library of books. I definitely don't have an archive like that. But everybody that's out there trying to preserve the history is going to help keep it alive, and it makes me happy, like I say, to be able to come on and do this. And I want to thank you guys. And I also want to thank you guys and everybody out there that's helped me through the last couple few months ever since this happened in January. I don't want to try and spin this into... Jim Phillips is broken. It's, you know, I mean, one of those type of deals, but I'll be back. I'm going to, my goal is to be in walking with a four wheel walker or like a stand up walker by Fourth of July and to be back walking under my own power by Christmas. So we're going to, that doesn't slow my brain or my fingers down a bit, though. So I'm going to keep churning out the work and we're going to keep doing these territory spots as long as you'll have me back.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you you heard it here first. The next time we have you on, we'll be talking Portland. So that sounds great. Old school Portland. Yes, absolutely. Uh, But, you know, Jim, just between you and me, the uh, the money I donated to your to your GoFundMe page, it was actually Benny's Christmas bonus. So
1: (laughs) I'm getting I'm getting the subway coupon in the mail. I know that. I spent it on whiskey and hookers at the
0: bar next to the hospital. Oh, well, that's what
1: I would have done, so I'm <laughs> glad you uh, right. Pe-
0: pe- no, I gotta be honest, all the money that was donated, it's it helped me buy this machine that's coming soon and helped me with my rent, helped me with so many expenses that the insurance that I have just wouldn't cover, and I wouldn't have been able to have done it without friends like you and people all over the world that donated money. People I didn't even know in some instances that donated money, it was amazing thing. You know, it was, it was, it really was. And, and from my heart, I I appreciate it. You know, it it makes me feel good to know that I've got that kind of a network out there of loving brothers and sisters. You know, I, I,
2: I think it's a Testament too. I mean, we shared it on our page. Um, you know, Javier, uh, Pro Wrestling Story shared it with him. The the Cauliflower Alley Club guy shared it. Yeah. I think it it kind of brings uh it kind of brings light to all these years later how close, you know, the wrestling community can still be. It's such a unique monster, but it is great to great to see you up and running. Um, hopefully now that, that you're at home and and getting about, you can you can stop sending us all those weird videos of you wiggling your toes. That that got that got a bit much, you know. Oh well, I'm sorry if only that, if only, that, if only that made gyms. You it was good stuff.
0: Sorry if that made you queasy, brother. I'm sorry. I was <laughs> I was happy with the progress. Yeah. Hey,
2: yeah. I, I mean it, it 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 saved me a few bucks. You know the uh the the the, the 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 or I should say saved me and Benny a few bucks. You know he didn't have to to renew some of his subscriptions with all those things you were sending out. So. Oh okay
0: okay.
2: No, I, I just obviously, like I said, it is great to see you out and about and th- the, how quickly it happened from from you first telling us about the surgery to, to like you said earlier, you know, getting up with minimal, minimal assistance and no machine and you'd be walking back and forth before Christmas. So, yeah, you know it's like you know.
0: the, it's like the snowflake rolling downhill, brother. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I hope. I hope by Christmas time, you know what I mean, everything's everything's good to go. Yeah. That's the goal. But in between now and then we will definitely be talking again. So until next time, I will see you later, my brothers. Yes,
1: sir. All right.
2: Peace out, brother. Well, you heard him. Uh, next time we have Jim on, it's going to be uh Portland. We'll be talking old school Portland territory. That's always good stuff. Check him out. Jim Phillips, Pro Wrestling Stories.com, for Pro dot com for the Original Long Island, Ice B, Benny Scala. I'm Dan Spaschiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Adios.